Bam! Recording. What's up, dear listener? Welcome to another episode of the Torch Podcast. I'm your co-host, Nathan Libehusen, and with me as always is... The amazing and awesome Devin Bindle. I agree. Uh, We want you to join us on this journey of relentless curiosity and normalizing civil discussions about everything from our fundamental rights to political philosophy to finance to foreign policy. All of this from two regular dudes super happy on a Friday that hate politics and love human flourishing. (laughs) Devin, it's it's been a minute. What's up? It's been a long minute, uh, but definitely uh, missed this and uh, missed the audience, missed uh, talking to you in long form about a lot of this discussion. So I'm excited to get back at it. How are you feeling? I'm good. Uh, We definitely fell off of our posting every Saturday or almost every Saturday routine. Life's been nuts. We uh, just, it's been busy at work for us and even busier personally, it feels like traveling and uh, misaligned schedules, people visiting all kinds of stuff. So we're we're excited to get back into a routine here um, and and post a little more consistently. 100%. It's been uh, chaotic uh, outside of this, uh, but it's nice that I feel like things are starting to come back together. Uh, A lot of good things have happened uh, for both of us, I think, in the last few weeks. And so now we get to come back and uh, hopefully hone all of that positive energy, uh, Mm -hmm. providing you guys some some useful information. Uh, So excited to get after it. I think we ended on a, a, de- a pretty good note, though. We uh, think uh, um, RFK Jr. has been kind of all over the headlines, and yeah, um, it, it, he remains a really interesting person. And so I'm glad that we got that episode out Not there, and that it was one of our it. later ones. But and uh, that episode continues to be useful to go back to and listen to and share with people. So we would love to hear what you guys think about that, and if that episode ages well or not. Seems to have aged well so far. Yeah, a hundred percent. Not to say we called it first, but oh. I know yeah, we were early to the game. We liked RFK before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, or thought he was interesting, at least. 100%. Um, yeah. Well, uh, we we wanted to uh, go back to the fundamentals a little bit in this episode. And obviously, you've already seen the title. Um, but one of the, one of the most common criticisms of libertarianism is the perception that uh, libertarians are individualists and want to be left alone. And the consequences of that would be that there would be this huge class of people that are left to starve, especially the poor, um, either literally starve because there's not enough food or like economically starve or um, health or in any other dynamic of necessity in life, like they would be underserviced if the government was a lot smaller and taxes were a lot lower and things like that. And um, on the surface, it's like a fair and like knee-jerk valid criticism and, and libertarians should be really good about thinking about this and uh, justifying their position if they still believe in the, the liberty option as to why a society in under libertarianism would uh, in fact, help the people more than current society does. And it's not immediately obvious as to why. So we wanted to get into that today. Yeah, I think uh, it's one of the most pressing and important questions that you can ask yourself as a libertarian or to a libertarian if you're not, um, because it really is important uh, that, that we take care of the disinfected people in our communities, at least it's important to me. Um, and even if it's not important to you, it, it has an impact on your life, even if you aren't one of those people. Um, so it is important to us as a whole uh, to make sure that we're taking care of those people. Um, but to say that a government has to do that, I, I don't see that to be true. And I, I'm excited to get into why that is the case. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to talk about uh, uh, moral duties on the individual level. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later in terms of like, we we owe it to the poor people to help them. Uh, and um, it's cool because I think at the end of the day, the punchline here is that's not necessarily true. But yeah, no, even, no. With, even though that it's not true, we're not going to use force. We're not going to point guns at people and compel them to help people. But the good news is that the vast majority of people uh, are, are willing to help people less fortunate and would be even more incentivized to without uh, social safety nets provided by the government. So um, we'll get into why that is here a little bit. And we would love to hear agreements, disagreements, and comments um, for, throughout this whole thing. But our, our, our inspiration for kicking this off is actually because of a recent Tom Woods show episode. It's episode 2353. Um, and his guest is Gerard Casey. He's a professor from the University College of Dublin. And um, quick 101 on Tom Woods. He's kind of the, he's like in his mid forties. He has a, like this big, beautiful family in Orlando. He's kind of the dorky dad of libertarianism. Um, he's uh, he's a total nerd, makes uh, dad jokes. And so he can be, he's like a little, like, uh, I don't know, Gen, Gen X cringy uh, at some points, but he's a genius. He, he went to Harvard and Yale. He knows a ton about history. Um, he's published all these different books. He was great through COVID. Um, obviously 2,353 episodes is a lot. He's ahead of Joe Rogan in terms of the number of podcast episodes he's done. Um, so he's, yeah, one of the godfathers of libertarian podcasting and, um, he's just a solid guy came from uh, Republican conservatism, but then realized he wanted people to be free and not just like the right wing version flavor of free. Uh, that's inconsistent and contradictory. So um, we will use a bunch of points brought up from that episode um, as a little bit of a framework, but I think there's all kinds of rabbit holes to dive into along the way to make it our own. Anything on that, Dev? Uh, yeah, I mean, um, no, I think you explained uh, explained him and uh, and his background uh, really well. Um, and uh, explain a little bit about the podcast and kind of give an overarching uh, you know discussion what we're going to talk about today, and then we'll get into it. Yeah. So um, the, the the framework of the podcast was kind of an evolving discussion. It wasn't super structured. So um, I wanted to start off with the some of the general objections that libertarians do here when it comes to social safety nets and, and welfare in general, uh, and and then kind of get into why it's not necessarily true that the government providing the social safety net is the best way to go. And so I think we just dive into specific points here and the, the, they mentioned kind of off to the side up front, an interesting observation about uh, status or big government people or people far left enough that they're labeled socialists or communists is um, kind of the hypocrisy of income redistribution, um, or at least the inconsistency of it. And this, this phenomenon that socialism and income redistribution, all these desires to, uh, take from the rich and give to the poor, um, as, as valiant as that might sounds, um, stops at the border of -hmm. the country. Uh, and so if you believed on principle that, people that have a lot of money and resources should quote pay their fair share or whatever terminology you're using in order to help those less fortunate. You would ideally that would be consistently applied to all of those less fortunate, whether they're in this country or outside of this country. And I'm just, we regularly, I hate to start off the podcast with an attack, but we so regularly see people on the left and sometimes on the right 
trying to make decisions that make their heart feel good about people at home at the, a lot of times at the expense of people overseas yeah, who like live in a different country. Uh, yeah. That's, and that, and that's what's so sad, sad is like, these are both human beings. These are both people. Um, and you place a, di- a different value on both of their heads in the name of something that you, of what you're saying is, is really good for everyone. And so like, just think about that concept right there. Like, this is something that you're commanding is good for every single person is what you're saying. And you're, when you're, when you're um, projecting this uh, type of mindset, but really it's only good for a certain subsect of people at the expense of another subsect of people. Uh, and so there's no way that that could be the correct answer. Um, and that, that I think is a, a huge fallacy in uh, this just way of thinking. Yeah, And it's um, it's why I value and I'm so fascinated by libertarian philosophy so much as that it's completely coherent is that yeah. uh, our belief about foreign policy and, and, you know, bringing troops home and not invading overseas is good for the people there. Um, yeah. And, and it's good for the people here. And like any, anything we're arguing for at home doesn't neg- negatively hurt somebody abroad. Um, but you can't say that um, you want to tax the rich at home to fund uh, welfare programs here for, uh, you know, uh, racial minorities here at home, uh, but you're all for the war in Iraq and sending Lockheed Martin and their bombs over there to blow up other, you know, brown people. It's just, it's an obvious contradiction. And so if you, if you care about the disenfranchised here, you should care about them overseas too. And I don't, if you're triggered by that accusation or something, I just fine, pick a different example, but I, I don't think there's any higher value than having what you believe and what you advocate for be consistent across a bunch of different subjects. So make sure you're consistent or it's just really hard for me to take you seriously. I don't even think you could really get triggered by that. If you think it through, like we're not asking that you don't do something good for someone. And I think some people, some people, when they say that they really mean like, I think the right attacks uh, the left sometimes with the same claim. And some of them mean that they really just, don't want them to help people in another country or vice versa, don't want them to help people in this country. Uh, and so they're, they're not necessarily ploying for anything good. Um, but the difference here with our uh, perspective is that we're not asking you just to not give to, not help the poor. We're not just asking you to um, not, uh, or we're not just asking you to rescind your troops in, uh, for no reason. Um, we're asking you for a better cause uh, and for an equal cause that'll help everyone. And I think that that's a totally different um, perspective that not a lot of people are used to, which I think is why people get triggered by this idea in the first place. I, you're right. Yeah. And I guess this is just a call to uh, check for blind spots because we love doing that to ourselves all the time. And I really um, I, I don't think people should feel embarrassed by finding a blind spot in their own beliefs. I think it's like this cool, dorky treasure hunt or something like yeah. um, it, so see next time you find yourself really believing something politically. Um, challenge yourself to apply that belief in a bunch of other areas of politics and government and society and see if it lines up, if it's consistent, or if you find yourself making logical contradictions or unequally applying this law everywhere. Because I think, I think it's impossible to run a society that way. You're just, you're trying, you're using your vote to try to get people to subscribe to your very specific incoherent set of political (laughs) beliefs 
Like, what are the odds that you're going to create a coherent society on that? Like, you're not going to be able to form a team. Um, so yeah. if, if you have well, a co, the, go ahead. The rules aren't evenly, uh, the rules aren't equal for, they're not equally understood by everyone because the only way to get an incoherent system to sound coherent is with rhetoric. Yes. Uh, and, and so, and that's blown up over the last few years, right? Yeah. That's why it's blown up is because the coherency of the two systems yes. has completely lost. It used to at least have certain coherencies that they would really hone in on focus on what they found was, oftentimes the things that are outside of the coherency were the most excitable for people and got the most people going um, and can really draw crowds and draw an interest. And so I think they started mm -hmm. to things that were not necessarily even coherent parts of their system that people really liked the ethic, the moral of the system that really is what people liked, but they thought they, for some reason, people are gravitated to those more excitable ideas. Yeah. When you have inconsistencies in your political beliefs, whether they're on the far left, far right, anywhere in between, um, you have to lean on propaganda and rhetoric and in-group in versus out-group uh, to like ch change the story of what's happening or only yeah. focus on one part or manipulate statistics in order to create this false sense of coherency. Um, and I think that's led to so many of the issues in the political space right now, so... We kind of got down a rabbit hole on that initial point about socialism as nationalism, ironically. You know, the, I, love um, these, I, lo uh, I loved the thought experiment there, though. That was really enjoyable to watch that uh, envelop. Yeah. And, and, the, and the fact that socialism is nationalism, you know, it sounds like left is right. You know, social, uh, socialists are demonizing nationalists because they're viewed as, you know, Trumpy, right, populists, you know, America first type people. Uh, but the, I challenge you to take a look at yourself. Um, in terms of income redistribution and helping those less fortunate overseas, um, are you sure you're not placing your own brown people over other brown people? Well, um, I mean, it's, yeah, try to make that system work where you use a finite amount of money. That is what we have now that takes care of 330,000 people. Million. But then, you know, 330 million, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, 30 million people. And now there's 8 billion people in the world. And now you need to use that same set of money to take care of 8 billion people because everyone deserves to be helped like by set on your system. Like if you stick to what you're saying as a, as every person is equal um, and we need to help everyone, then yes, you have to evenly distribute that help throughout the entire world. That's 8 billion. That's not going to work. No one's going to get any help. Nothing's going to get done. Mm -hmm. And so uh, your system is, is broken just by that, or you have to conflict one of the two and you choose, we're going to not help those people overseas. We're not going to help people outside the border so that this system can kind of work here. Um, and I would question whether it even does work, but that's what you have to do. You're compromising your morals to allow the system to work. And that's not okay. You know, or it's not even necessary because you can have a system where you don't have to compromise your morals. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to introduce. And I can try to steal ban for a second. You know, the first of uh, the counter to that would be, you know, uh, the government owes um, owes help and social safety nets to its own people first and then people internationally as a matter of prioritization, um, just because you have to, I don't know, if you have to solve a thousand problems, you have to solve them in some wow. kind of order, right? Yeah, but um, why? I think you get back to why, like, why would you have to choose the people here over the people abroad? Like what is you would have you would have to stick to the argument that the government owes certain things to its own people first and then people abroad and and I would say okay since when has our government been doing that? Well, it's the same thing as saying we value 
people here more than we value over there. It's yeah. the same exact thing. You're just saying it a different way. And so uh, maybe, that, you're maybe you're I, aspirational and you think the U.S. government can uh, feed every poor person in the world. Um, that's great. And that you want to start with the people here at home. I, I don't think that is the case. Okay. I mean, look at foreign the aid. EU, and The EU offered up like something, some crazy amount of money uh, to anyone that could come up with a way to uh, to oh, utilize yeah. their entire set of money to uh, feed the poor. It was like something like $2 trillion to feed every poor person in the world is how much they could use. Uh, and n- nobody's been able to figure it out or nobody's given them the answer to it. Uh, I-, I think they might've set it up like that. Like it's just a possible question to answer. Uh, Elon Musk has spoken about this as well, mm-hmm. about just the difficulty of in with our current systems of being able to solve poverty so it, it that brings you back to this point there are this issue where it's an impossible problem to solve and so you have to uh eliminate caring about one's either the set of people or uh, the original ethic uh, and i think that they choose like we're not going to care about these people uh, out there and we're going to continue to utilize our system that doesn't necessarily even uh it, it doesn't have a it, you have to compromise the ethics it doesn't have a um i don't know what i'm trying to say a grounded yeah. ethic and i'll add a caveat to that i don't think it's even an impossible problem i think it's an impossible problem to solve in a centralized way from the top yeah. down through laws and through foreign aid i think that's impossible that way um, yeah. i think it's perfectly possible through decentralization and bottom up a bunch of individuals yeah. acting in their own interests and voluntarily exchanging with everybody else in the world. That's how capitalism's lifted billions of people out of poverty in the last hundred years. And uh, if we just got out of the, continued to get out of the way or stay out of the way of that in, um, in more and more serious ways, I think we continue to see global extreme poverty numbers decline. So would you say that the, even the thought of the government being able to be the solution, like, this idea that they're going to save us, um, you know, I've got this social security net, I have this uh, financial backdrop, if I, in case I fall or in case I don't set myself up well, do you think that's why people don't feel the necessity to help others? Yeah, that's- this this is a big point that we'll get into later is um, uh, there's all kinds of areas, not just like letting the poor starve, but like um, outsourcing your individual moral responsibility to the government is creating the shit show of a society that we're seeing today. Um, you're robbing people of uh, self-actualization and feeling like they're really helping people because you've the, everybody's voted that the government, not everybody, um, a bunch of people have voted that the government should be the ones to take care of this. And our, the sliver of moral feel-good that you get from voting for somebody that says they're going to take care of the poor, uh, it pales in comparison to the self-actualization, the the real meaning that you'd feel like you have if you're the one helping um, people that you choose to help in the way that you choose to help. Like if you've ever done any chari- charity work, like some of my f- best and favorite, most fulfilling days of my life have been um, when like through work or through a charity organization, I go out and and donate my own time. I'm actually per- inputting physical labor to help people that I can see with my own eyes. Um, it, it, that's that's that has felt more empowering to me and it created more gratitude than anything that I could send to some bureaucrat in Washington. I 100% agree. I mean, I go out and do my own charity work within my own community uh, often. It's something that I've always cared about deeply, and um, not because 
I think the government's, you know, got my, not because I don't think the government's got my back. I've kind of just, uh, just something I wanted to do. So I know that there's a lot of other people that live and think like that. And I think like Nathan thinks that these are very fulfilling and enjoyable moments. Um, and, and it, and it's being robbed of us because we're robbed of many of us because, um, you know, the government says, we got you, we're going to take care of this. Uh, and so we don't realize that we are the people that are helping the rest of us. Uh, and that's another, you know, disconnect instead of thinking, wow, look, everyone else is helping me when I'm down. Everyone else in my community is helping me when I'm down. They, they think, well, my government helped me when I was down and it creates a, an attraction to, to the governmental side of things instead of attraction to the real people that are giving you the benefit. One of my favorite quotes is that forced charity is not charity. And I yeah. think, and I think that's absolutely true. You don't have the option to donate to these uh, welfare programs. Um, this is forcibly taken from you through extortion via taxes. And so I, I, it's not even something that you can claim as a moral good, like you going to work and paying your taxes, not that you have a choice, uh, so that the government funds some welfare programs. I don't, I don't even understand how you can argue that if you don't have the choice, it can't be argued that it's like this moral good that you've done. So like challenge yourself to reclaim some of that. And I, I, one of my best proofs for why a libertarian society, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. One of my best proofs for why a libertarian society would actually help the poor more than the status quo is that ask yourself, can you think of a single person yourself included that would do less charity work or care less about charity if the government wasn't there to do it, or even wasn't there to do it at the scale that it's doing it. If half the programs went away tomorrow, would you help less? Would your parents or family or friends help less? Some people would help the same amount or they're helping zero now and they'll help zero after these laws. But how many more people would step up? Yeah, and uh, not to mention like, if we just take a look around, uh, if you go to LA, if you go to San Francisco, it's pretty obvious that we're not doing a great job of helping the poor as it is. And uh, if anything, that the the real thing that stands between them and the life that they want to live is more of the, the red tape and bureaucracy that exists at the bottom level of like this breakthrough point to get mm -hmm. away from homelessness and uh, get away from poverty. And so you, in this system, that doesn't exist either. Like in the, in this system, you're free more free at the bottom if things have bottomed out for you a little bit to make something again of yourself and people are more free to utilize your um, benefits and your uh, ability to work um, because there's not going to be as much bureaucracy and red tape as well. And, and the if uh, the homelessness problem or the mental health crisis problem seems like this unsolvable, really complicated problem, I think it is, but the, uh, but in, the best way I can confidently argue that the best way to tackle this is through the most extreme decentralization that you can picture. It's individuals helping individuals or very small charity groups helping one or two people. This is why that church model worked for, for so long is that the church would, would know the families that are struggling and help individual families. They know their situations best. Um, and this is a point I wanted to get into later, but we're talking about it now so we can bring it to the front um, is that, if you, if the recipients know the donors and um, the donors know the recip 
recipients personally, um, this vastly reduces abuse in the system because there's a personal face-to-face real relationship there that both sides want to preserve at some point. They're both incentivized to preserve that um, relationship. Um, but when it's this big faceless bureaucracy that's thousands of miles away and you're getting some stamps, um, you know, food stamps in the mail, um, it, it just invites abuse on both sides because it feels so removed. But if you had to go hat in hand and ask for donors at, in your local organizations, um, you would want to make sure that the relationship stays good. And uh, that's, a, that's a great point uh, that I've, I've never really uh, thought about in great detail. Um, but that that's a phenomenal point because there right now uh, nonprofits are one of the most abused uh, systems in America. They are, I think it's something it's between 22 and 30% of the money raised annually goes to the cause that it says it, it goes to the rest of it is utilized um, for system systematic payouts uh, and paying the people that work for the system. Uh, and then uh, for other people uh, chair or not chairman but um everyone outside of the chairman getting paid uh and a lot of times very large amounts some sometimes as much as you would make in a business if you were running it uh and so there's super incentive incentives to take advantage of the system on the other side there's super incentives to take advantage of the system for government uh programs as well and so to remove those incentives you're introducing the idea that when people are come face to face with somebody that they're about to work with uh, or take the money from, they, they have the incentive to do justly with that money and uh, and to give it their best best effort um, to spend it wisely, I think, um, on one side. And then on the other side, if you're going to give to somebody, you get the full reward coming back to you. So I think it does create this uh, two-folded like, accountability system, unless you're just like spineless. <laughs> but outside of that, like, I think it does create a, a really nice accountability system. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and if you're, if you're feeling like you have to take our word for it too much here, that, uh, the government programs are inefficient, but smaller programs are efficient. Um, I'd invite you to think about a bunch of big companies that, you know, and, um, and the phenomenon that as companies get bigger, once they pass a certain point of economies of scale um, and certain like first move, mover advantages and other uh, advantages granted them by the government, the bigger companies are the ones that tend to be inefficient. Uh, think about uh, your own work history. The bigger the company, there tend to be more bullshit jobs within that company, right? There tends to be bigger spend, uh, not the same output per dollar of spend. Um, and I think that's a really good argument for decentralization in the, in the, the nonprofit sector too, like Susan G. Komen, that giant, um, like breast cancer research charity organization, you know, that big scandal that like 5% of their, um, donations were actually going to cancer research and their CEO was making, you know, um, tens of millions of dollars a year. That doesn't, that, kind of abuse just doesn't happen at the local community level, at the church level, at the small local nonprofit level. Those, those smaller nonprofits are miracle workers by scraping by, like they're well, they getting do. so much output with uh, working with so little resources. Right. And the big end and, and the, they're, they're trying literally scraping by uh, with so little resources. I've talked to many nonprofits as I was starting trying to start my own. Uh, and I've, I was, 
talking to as many people as I could, uh, especially at the latter end of my college uh, years and spoke with many people that didn't have enough money to pay their employees, couldn't survive in the space, um, you know, had to have another uh, had to go get another job, even though that they were running this full time. But it's those large you're, you spoke to it perfectly. It's a large scale nonprofits that have taken advantage of it. Um, and it's because the accountability system, I don't think exists simply because the, uh, it, it's all enveloped in the, the social security and the government helping, um, you know, these people. And, and there's this idea, uh, what is that, what is that, uh, philosophical theory that states like, um, you know, it, the more people that, you know, s- can see something happen that there's this diffusion of responsibility is what it is. Yeah. Like mob mentality. Yeah. And so there's this diffusion of responsibility that like one, the government's got it. And two, like you already paid your taxes. I already did what I have to do. And so like mm-hmm. people don't pay attention. And so if we were in, lived in a, a different world, say a libertarian world, you're looking at these nonprofits and making sure that they're spending their money wisely and accurately um, because it's your money that you've given to them. They're not getting yeah. government grants to survive. The yeah. government the government grants are what fund 90% of these nonprofit agencies. And so um, they're taking advantage of your money, but nobody really knows and nobody really understands because it's not in their face because they didn't write the check knowingly. They wrote the check through taxes. When you when you can't keep an eye on where your forced tax payments go, um, and it, you have no individual say over whether these programs exist in the first place, yeah, think about how little you like caring about how efficient these government programs are is like a waste of your time because you can't do anything to change it anyway. Imagine if you were writing the same amount of dollars you're paying in taxes. Imagine if you're writing that check to somebody, um, you're saying. You're choosing to say no to your own pleasure and providing your own needs um, and, and through the goodness of your heart, deciding to help other people, you're going to have an incentive uh, to care about how efficiently that money is spent. And to put a bow on my earlier point um, that uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like large nonprofits shouldn't exist or that they should be illegal or no, something. They should just my have point their accountability structure. Sure, and they would sure. if you gave them the money and it wasn't given to them in these large grant-like functions. But but the largest nonprofit, well, it's not even a nonprofit, the largest example of those types of institutions, it goes from these really small voluntary nonprofits to like bigger bureaucratic, slower nonprofits. But even above that is these is the giant government yeah. welfare program. So as efficiency goes uh, increases, as size increases, the at the very top of this pyramid is the SNAP program uh, and um, Medicaid and all of these different programs. So imagine how inefficient and the bureaucratic bloat that exists in those organizations. I think I've heard arguments for Medicaid um, that I think are are really strong and really good. I don't personally agree, um, but I have heard good arguments for it. And so like, I do think that our own insurance uh, currently system is is not great, um, but I also don't, I don't think that those would be the same options that would be available if a, a non, non-government entity didn't exist or if a gov- government entity didn't exist within that space. So I think that they kind of have to curve around their rules based on the entity that the government has created. Um, and from what I've heard from doctors, it's a mess. Um, many doctors talk about not getting paid out for Medicaid, um, but like 15%, 20%. 
Um, and so we hear about an inefficiencies on that side, um, but you also hear about uh, the trouble with getting onto the system uh, and uh, the inefficiencies of like when you can sign up. It's just a big mess of a, a program. And I don't think anything that or something that, you know, people enjoy on, on any side of it, whether it be the consumer, the producer, any part of that system. And so uh, I, I definitely think that that's something people should sympathize with. Like these systems aren't working well. I am pretty sure that together we could create better systems. Yep. Absolutely. And that's a good transition into um, kind of the, the pre-planned points that we want to do address here. Uh, Cause we're, <laughs> yeah, we went on uh yeah, we've expanded on some of those early points a good amount there. So, uh, it, so yeah, let's uh, compromise. Let's say you know maybe um, if if my position is zero government programs and your position is the status quo or more government programs would help more people. Um, let's uh, meet somewhere in the middle. We'll say uh, let's pretend that less government programs is the ideal balance. Um, so I think the claim from a lot of people that are pro-welfare, pro-larger government, pro-social um, safety net, um, they would say that um, that taxes are justified to fund the literal and welfare infrastructure that you benefit from. Um, so we'll decide how much of your income that you keep uh, and that uh, you're enabled and you have your own safety net because of the taxes that are taken from you to fund the, these projects. All right, so let's dive into that statement um, that taxes are morally justified because you benefit from them and it's a demo it's a democracy so it's uh, allegedly a collective decision on what tax rates are uh, right now so we decide how much of your income you get to keep uh, first objection to that brought up in that tom woods episode is who the hell is we yeah who's this <laughs> we that's deciding how much of my income that i get to keep i don't remember being asked no I don't remember them ever. We we have no say. We have no say in what they do is how I feel about it. The income tax was created in 1913. Yeah. Have we looked at have we looked at the fundamental question of whether income tax should exist at all since then? How are these marginal rates dis, um, decided? Is there any correlation between these marginal income tax brackets and uh, um, favorable outcomes for the poor? or financial stability of the country. It goes back to this fundamental question. If the government can just print money, then why am I paying taxes? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and the, and at a controlled rate, um, and it's just, it's like utilized as well as this, um, this political warfare, of like whether or not they're going to give taxes to the rich or give it to the poor. Uh, and it's like, it keeps you from asking the question of how valid is the reason that we're paying these taxes in the first place? Cause they want to ask you who should pay them, but like, it's a blanket statement that they have to be there. Uh, right. But, but nobody sits there and asks the question, should we be paying these taxes? Should we be paying this amount of taxes altogether? Why is our bill this high? Yeah. Uh, in the first place, income inequality and taxation arguments in the political sphere are just it's just used as rhetoric to either punish or reward the people that you view as allies or enemies like the left is like um, we're blaming the the one percent and the capitalists. Um, so we're going to take more money from them uh, um, and that will restore moral order and moral good in the world. And the right is saying uh, generally that tax tax rates should be lower. Um, 
because that'll help more people. And but we've we've gone so far past or forgotten the political argument that hey, uh, should we challenge ourselves to connect these? Uh, these tax rates and this welfare programs to actual results because a business would have to do that. Our business does it all the time. Uh, if we we judge the validity of a project or an initiative or a strategy uh, based on the actual results that it achieves. And if it's wrong, we change it or drop it and adopt something else. When's the last time we've done that with any, just anything in government from the department of education to the tax rates, to the spending that we do to foreign policy, there's, there's not a connection anymore to inputs and results. And yeah. that's why I don't understand why the, the argument that government should be run like a business isn't a good one. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's like, for from from what I see here, it, it's like this, it, it's been diluted down to um, the simple fact that taxes are going to exist. Like we've forgotten that, uh, that we're paying for like that we are the ones that are paying for this we almost have outsourced that to the government is paying for this we've literally stopped questioning the idea of taxes even like the saying like the only thing that you're sure of in life is death and taxes like it's a uh, it's so ingrained in our mind that it comes out in our uh in our little bits of speech that we just assume that taxes taxation is the best and uh, best answer for every solution uh and we forget that like the Boston Tea Party was a thing. Like, I'm not saying that we should get rid of all taxes, but I tend to believe or at least believe in that direction. Uh, I definitely think that we should move to questioning what we're paying taxes for and questioning the government systems that we're paying taxes for, um, because it just seems like they're using it's such an inefficient spend of our money. And, and to even rise that question, get kind of people come back at you with such vigor uh, when I think it's the most valid question, it's the only thing that keeps our government accountable if we're going to have a government at all. Can I, can I minimally propose that if you're going to point a gun at my head figuratively or literally to take a, uh, the fruits of my labor, part of it, uh, that I demand some amount of positive results from the programs that yes. are being funded with the money that I didn't choose to give you? We, we need to, we can argue around the, with the edges about how, how much time these programs should be given, how much money these programs should be given, uh, what KPIs they should be measured on. Um, but you can't just c collect money and throw it at these programs and wash your hands and say, well, that's good enough because I did the morally good thing um, without ever circling back to gather some data and results um, and, and set some high standards for yourself. It should be, if anything, if they want to keep these systems, it should be run, if it's going to be run like a business, then it should be run a business that is accountable by the people that are paying them, that are stakeholders. And that would be the American people. I don't think that this should be done at all, uh, Grand U, but because I don't think this is possible because I, can, I don't think that they can run the system efficiently enough to outdo what we could do naturally as a people. Because, because of the centralization, decentralization problem we brought up exactly. before. Exactly, exactly. But if you want to try, you at least have to do it so efficiently that this all makes sense, that all of our money that we're giving you makes sense, that we couldn't spend it better individually together. Uh, and so if you're going to make it make sense and then make it make sense, but they don't do that. They just leave a blanket. They say, we're, we're going to collect all your money and you don't get to see what's going to happen to it. And that's just going to be that. And you 
and you can't say anything about it. And that's to me the most wrong thing that we've done since the inception of our country is like you're stealing people's money and you're using it to do things that are not only evil uh, and they're wasteful and they're inefficient and we're uh, it's just damaging uh, and I think it's it's wrong and it's just evil in every way every sense of the word. Yeah, um, it, it's it, it, even if you don't agree that it's evil and that we do owe some of these taxes. Uh, Fine. Uh, we can put that argument aside and, and Devin and I can still sit here and argue that um, we can still argue that, OK, fine, it's not morally evil, but it's not working either. So, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's the the moral evil is that it's if it is that you're robbing good things from the world. Like that's the def, I, in my opinion, the definition oh, like in a general sense, like, yeah, yeah. just in, in a general in, sense, like you're a, robbing good things from the world, like the possibility. There's so many possible good outcomes that this money could have that not just these money, these people that you're putting in these systems that they could have as well. Mm -hmm. You're allowing them to be inefficient and you're allowing them to be inaccountable simply because the system allows it uh, the way that it's set up currently. And and so, uh, I I mean, I just think it's wrong. Like these could, this could be, I think we would have a much better planet, a much better country and a much better, um, you know, earth if uh if if we would just allow things to come out naturally instead we're trying to like force a round object through a square hole or a Mm -hmm. square object through a round hole it's just um i don't know it just doesn't make a lot of sense when you break it down yeah so let's dive into some more specifics as to why that claim is true or we believe it to be true um and so let's uh compromise and say that like uh all right well we do settle on uh some tax rate higher than zero um, I, I think a common criticism of libertarianism is that libertarians uh, object to paying for any services that are funded by taxes um, because we object to like the services themselves, services being roads or national defense yeah. or things like that. And I think a really important there's the problem. Countered, well, a really important clarification there that might bring us a little bit closer to compromises. Um, liber- I'm speaking for all libertarians because it's just easier and shorter, um, but we're not objecting to paying for these services. We acknowledge that roads cost something and that a national defense costs something and that it has to be funded in some way. Our huge objection here is that we're receiving an unitemized bill mm-hmm. for these services. We have no say in how much the roads cost, what road projects get done, uh, what contractor gets hired to um, pro- to build these roads. Uh, we don't. There's no auditing system for everything from the Fed to the SNAP program. Uh, to uh, I mean, how many billions of dollars in the foreign policy budget are completely unaccounted for? There was just six point two million dollars um, that was an alleged accounting error in the war in Ukraine that justified us. You know. Uh, sending an additional 6.2 billion over there like the the amount of waste fraud and abuse because of this unitemized bill that is inherent to the government only this doesn't happen in big corporations because they couldn't the stakeholders they couldn't, the shareholders wouldn't allow that level of fuckery and incompetence on the accounting side but it's just inherent with government because they have no they have a monopoly on these institutions and and people don't want to dive that deeply and, and call people out for it. So libertarians aren't objecting to paying for these services. We're objecting to the inefficient, unitemized bill. Yeah, the, 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 it's the lack of accountability. I mean, and that's the theme, I feel like, of this uh, message is like, there, 
the government, if they there's no way for them to be accountable that I can at least see currently, or at least we're not actively trying to make them feel accountable. So our the idea that we're introducing is instead, uh, if they're incapable of being accountable, then could we not all be accountable, more accountable ourselves to our own money and to our own uh, ideas and to our own like creation of how to solve problems? I mean, they're not doing it well. Like if you, if you, you can argue with me, I think if you could say, if you could honestly sit there and say, you think the government is doing a good job with these systems. And I just don't think anybody even believes that they're just not willing to think of another way to do it. Or they're scared of losing their security blanket. Yeah. I, I think so much of this is just, um, and you see this, I think the older people get, the more they believe this, uh, it's harder for them to shake old habits. And that it, there, there's this really strong sense in the social safety net dynamic in politics today that um, this is how we've always done it, or this is how I've always seen it done. So we must continue it this way. Um, and this is, uh, their hearts are, again, uh, the bleeding heart liberals, their hearts in the right place. It's like, um, this is too important and too big of a deal to experiment with getting rid of or vastly reducing. And, uh, okay, I mean, I would challenge you to, like, make specific arguments past that, but I understand the sentiment. And I think that it's just, like, comparable to the 401k. Like, that's where people – I mean, I feel like that that institution has its own amount of corruption in it that doesn't necessarily allow for an honest uh, comparison uh, to the Social Security. But right now social security has a sector of uh, what is it like 22% that's going to go bankrupt in uh in 2 years a year yeah i can't remember the first tranche of um serious financial problems but i think it's the early 2030s like social security is in a huge i think it it problem. starts like it becomes insolvent and like pretty soon yeah. yeah well the the trust becomes insolvent in like 2030 and that means yeah, that's like, yeah. Uh, and so I think that'll be, I think from, from what I heard about that, that is, that puts us in a position to be down like 28% of what you get currently or what people would get currently, mm -hmm. but it just shows the direction that it's heading also. Like, it's not like this is getting better. Oh, 28%. We have this great plan of how to fix it. It's only going to get worse uh, yeah. and for quite a bit longer. Uh, and, and that there is a reduction in population coming here in the next like 20 years, but, uh, but not, not fast enough. Not fast not, enough. Like, the program just... will be completely in, uh, insolvent by that time. Yeah. And, and everything, and everything that you attempt to do, this goes back to the fundamentals of money. Everything that you attempt to do from printing money to raising taxes, um, is going to appear to slap a bandaid on social security and make it a solvent for a little bit longer at the expense of, the economy, individual productivity, net worth of everybody contributing to the social security program. It's just, it was, uh, it was set up actual actuarially based on bad assumptions in the sixties and seventies. And, and it's just been downhill and less solvent ever since. And, well, the, and it's, and it's this zombie that cannot be killed because it's political suicide. And the fact that it's political suicide shows that people aren't thinking deeply or long-term about these issues. They're trying to grab as much benefit as they can because they feel like they're owed it and that's such a problem yeah it really is uh, and let's also like just draw um a, a map of kind of what we've talked about through many of our episodes up until this point um because i think that it'll speak strongly to this message uh the not only 
are we asking for this? But we've asked for quite a few other things um, prior to this uh, that would come along with this libertarian society that would allow for this inflationary rate, if you utilize our entire system, to not be so high to where people would even need this social security net at the same rate that they do now. Uh, and all of that comes with the political bureaucracy uh, that uh, the inefficiencies of systems that uh, and the inefficiencies of spend of money uh, has created. And so without any of these things in place, the, the our ability to, to have this great world where we can all afford to live goes up, not down. And, and so it's like all of these systems, yeah, if you haven't been able to tell till now, like I would go back and listen to those videos again. It will, this paints a beautiful picture of why if you take down all of these systems, your chances of enjoying your life, um, but also being able to afford your life goes significantly up. And, and so your, your ability to, when you get to retirement age, you will actually be able to retire and survive off your money because things aren't costing 8%, 10% more every year. Mm -hmm. And so your, your plan, the ability to plan for long-term um, becomes much easier because you can plan this is this is how much money this is and this is how much it'll be worth over this amount of time. Um, and right now that's the big problem in the 401k financial advisor uh, industry is inefficiencies of plans because things are changing so rapidly because of the money that we borrowed uh, to create our federal reserve uh, in the past. And so I think that that starts to play a large effect into this problem we're ha we have right here in front of us. That's a great point. There's so many rabbit holes to go down there, but um, we can talk about uh, we can talk about how financial fuckery and, and leaning on Social Security for retirement creates all these moral hazards, and it's a dead end road. Um, but but like focusing back in on the social safety net component um, and how the big libertarian objection is not having the social safety net would lead to a greater number of poor people. Um, it's, um, it, that seems to be the primary objection and the, uh, Gerard Casey, the professor that inspired this episode, uh, backs that up. He found that in his classes, like the primary objection to the libertarian view, isn't that the, these social safety net services couldn't be provided through private voluntary organizations. Um, not that it's like impossible to do it privately, but that if it were done that way, there would just be a greater number of poor people than if, than if the government stepped in and took care of some of these services. And so um, I wanted to introduce or go through a couple points as to why that's that we can prove that that's not true um, without running this alternate simulation where we okay. get rid of these government programs. Like you can, you can rest assured and vote to abolish these programs and through logic and praxeology, we'll create some points here for why there will be less poor people. Excited to, to get into this part because uh, the math is just not mathing uh, <laughs> the way that they do this. It's like they, they're, they don't, add anything to the side of the people when they get their money back they only say like this is where the, a lot of times when they do collect this data it's like this is how this is how many jobs the government creates this is how many job or this is how much money the government gives to this group and this is how much money uh the government helps with um you know the helping you know with katrina and all of these things mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't say if you didn't spend that money 
how much more, mm-hmm. what, what could you have accomplished? And so you're like, yeah. there's this giant gap in their math and they and I, I think that that's on purpose, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's another form of rhetoric that gets you away from the actual truth of things. Yeah. Uh, the math isn't mathing because you're reporting, you're patting yourself on the back for all the inputs and you're releasing yourself of the responsibility of tying the outputs or the outcomes or the results to those inputs that you just tweeted through your White House uh, yeah. tweet machine. Um, and, and so let's dive into some specific history here. So there, there was social welfare long before there was a, a bloated state. Um, th- so the options that we have here are not anarchy and the status quo as being our only two options. There, yeah. there are all kinds of uh, things in the middle. And you know what, Devin and I will settle for progress um, instead of smashing on the gas pedal uh, towards the towards the cliff. Right? Huh? I'll settle for a pension plan. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely can i just have uh, my social security contributions back i'll i'll uh, make way more money with it than i'll ever get from my contributions kept in that program if our governments weren't keeping our businesses from lasting 20 years they could afford to give people a pension plan <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, so, so taxes um the first taxes in what we can argue are modern societies were about the 17th century were mostly used for wars. They were the, it was the way for the monarchy or the state uh, to go around and collect money from people so that they could go capture territory or colonialize or, you know, the king fighting his own battles. Um, Taxes weren't used for welfare for this, from the state for a very, very long time. So um, the point about bringing up this history is that the state and large government and uh, social welfare aren't intrinsically and forever and foundationally linked. They are separate phenomenon that arose separately. So uh, there was a reality where the government didn't have social welfare. So it's possible to go back to that reality is what I'm saying. Um, And uh, libertarians aren't isolationists. Uh, The vast majority of us want to interact and serve other people. I think a common objection is that libertarians just want to go off on their own and not help anybody. Um, and that's conflated with, and that's conflated with a sense of when we say things like individualism, uh, that paints the picture that we're only going to care about ourselves. Uh, but it's, it's actually so much more based on having the individual freedom to choose to help people or not help people and not forcing people at the point of a gun to do it. Um, so we wanted to introduce some real specific data here. Um, there's a claim in the podcast, and we found plenty of data to, to back it up from sources you can't really argue with, that U.S. poverty, poverty numbers were declining throughout the middle of the 20th century. You know, things after World War II, poverty numbers were trending in the right direction um, and at a, a pretty good, consistent rate. Um Extremely and, and then the welfare system gets introduced or unpaused or escalated, whichever whichever specific program you're talking about, um, in the 1970s. And then the poverty rate stagnated. We can look at it. This is data from uh, we're looking at a line graph from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, um, and we and we see the percentage of individuals who are poor by the official poverty standard um, uh, was about 35 percent in 1950. And by the late sixties, it was about half of that. So a really rapid decline, um, about 1% a year, which is, I mean, amazing. And then, uh, these social, 
welfare programs get funded, escalated, expanded in the 1970s. And what do you know, since then, the percentage of individuals who are poor by the official poverty standard has remained flat or even climbed um, in, in some decades. So how crazy is it? I mean, how that's insane uh, that we it looked like we were solving the issue. If you if you were looking at this graph to go from 35 percent to when the war on poverty began, uh, just about 18 percent. Um, we had halved uh, the poverty in just 20 years, um, which is incredible before we started the war on poverty. And then since then, we have essentially, we had a small decrease that consisted of what was going on before then. But then as soon as this, all this stuff started to actually affect the economy, we've had a 3% increase since three years after that day. And so it's like, we've been spending all of this money and we've accomplished nothing. And, yeah. and just another example of the Federal Reserve problem. It's like the more time, the more money we steal from the system, the more money we steal from the people to fight against something, or they say that they're fighting against something, the less it actually gets fought against. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's I was, just, yeah, I was, I was just realizing that as I realized, no, war on poverty. Um, it, so in the future, this is a really cool way to predict the future. If uh, there's ever a war on something launched, whatever the war is launched against, is just the thing that's going to end up winning in the decades coming up. No so the war, the war on the war on poverty won the war on poverty. Uh, drugs ended up winning the war on drugs, and terrorists ended up winning the war on terrorism. Um, so the war on guns currently. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So yeah, let's apply it to some of the wars that we're allegedly fighting now, and um, it'll give you a, a good idea who we're going to lose to in the next few decades. Um, and, and I would imagine if you asked most like well-meaning liberals or big government people, like what is this line? What is this curve look like uh, before and after the war on poverty launches? I'm guessing most people would say, hey, we had this this high or maybe even increasing rate of poverty before the war on poverty began. And since then, there's probably been a slow decline of uh, the number of poor people since the war on poverty was launched. I bet most people would think that it's actually the opposite. It's sad that I would have, even as someone who ex has an extreme distrust for the government, I would have guessed that this was something that they could figure out at least a little bit. Yeah. Like I would have guessed that it was like a really, really big problem in the 50s and in the 60s and that it was not a problem now. And instead, uh, it's been this problem or in the 70s and 80s that it was a big problem and now it's not a big problem. And instead, it's just been the same problem since we started this it's I mean, that's just mind opening. That's they they managed to, to fuck up the good trajectory with all this extra money. Um, it, I mean, even if libertarians would have a good argument that the war on poverty didn't, didn't do anything, if the decreasing rate of poverty maintained at what one percent a year, give or take, um, our libertarians would be like, look, if you just would have left it alone, it would have continued this. But not only did the government not maintain the good trajectory that they had, but they fucked it up. Now it's been flat or positive ever ever since all of this extra social welfare started being introduced. Um, so the data just doesn't back it up. If somebody has a good like argument on um, um, actual demonstrative progress in any of these programs, um, I'd love to see it. Um, but it's this goes I'm back to hard data. This is you know this is U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Yeah, this this is isn't some anarchist dark web website like. <laughs> um, and this goes back to our the the uh, WTF happened in 1971 episodes like the war on poverty in 1971 correlate pretty well too, and so um, this might not be solely blamed on the funds 
allocated to the war on poverty. Um, it's um, it, it's multifactorial. It's the war on poverty plus the the ruining of the money. It's every time you steal money from the people. It's just the inefficiency of the spend. It's when you take people that were already spending naturally, and then you take all of their money in a conglomerate matter, you should be able to spend it more efficiently because there's no accountability and because there's no real desire. There's no necessity to spend it efficiently um, by the powers that be. It it breaks down because of the system allows it to. Um, and so it, it allows for people to take advantage of it. It allows for people, um, for narcissistic, psychopathic people to come in there. And I'm not saying all of them are, but the, the ones that are will take advantage of it by their nature. That's what they are. And that's what they mm -hmm. do. And uh, even, and even if there's a lot of super well-meaning people in the lower levels of this hierarchy of government, somebody um, will programs, be a narcissistic psychopath. It's like, well, that, but the, there's an inherent centralization problem that no matter how hard you fight and how well you mean, this is not a problem that you can solve in a centralized manner in an efficient well, way or anywhere close to the decentralized well, uh, programs with the same goals as you. It's just impossible. It, it's even if it was possible, it's 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 more difficult. I don't know why you'd even want to choose this way. You have less freedom and it's more difficult. Like no one with any sense would choose this. And I don't think anybody choose chose this on purpose. I think what happens is the marginalized people group, like everyone that has feeling pain in the country at the time, they're like, yes, I need money. I need help. And so somebody comes along, a politician comes along and says, hey, I can help you if you vote for me. And mm -hmm. then they get voted in mm -hmm. because these people need help. But the, 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 that part problem, the problem is it doesn't get helped. They don't help the people that they promised to help. They just steal their vote. And then they talk about helping for the rest of their four years so that they can get voted for again. Um, but they don't actually have to do anything because nobody nobody checks in on them. And even the people that do, it doesn't matter. Uh, they're, they can only be president mm -hmm. for four to eight years. And it doesn't really matter at that point. Their life's set up. Everything's good. Mm -hmm. well, but if it was a local election, if it was somebody yeah, voted in at your, your own child's like uh, school board, it'd be way easier to go to a town hall and hold them accountable to this stuff. But they're thousands of miles away in D.C. Exactly. doing their own thing, raising money for their next election. It's bring it home, guys, and you'll get the closer to the results that you want. Um, and on to the next point, I I think a lot of um, people that are pro social safety net, pro um, get these government programs, um, are scared to get rid of them because uh, it, it appears that the the private welfare infrastructure isn't big enough to take on the current need. And that so if you get rid of the government programs, there just won't be enough charity dollars or charity people to go around to prop up the, the problem. But uh, I invite you to think about how anywhere in the economy, if there's if there's a big demand or a big incentive for something to exist, how without fail, it, it tends to arise because people have incentives to supply for a demand. Um, so if private wealth, like private welfare is in low demand right now because there's um, there's a perception that it's being supplied by the government. And that's um, a, a false it, that's a false assumption, but people are uh, writing big checks by force to the government every year to fund these programs. And so they're convincing themselves that no, that that's the government's responsibility. I paid to outsource my moral responsibility to the government. Um, but there really is this lack of private welfare right now. And so if we remove the false perception that the government is supplying these welfare programs, there will be 
it's all like privatizing always removes price distortions. So there will be, there will be this accurate perception that, oh man, there really is a lack of supply in private welfare. And once that's realized, private welfare will increase. Um, private welfare seems to be absent because they're disincentivized to exist in the status quo. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I, I think you painted the picture uh, perfectly. It's like um, that the private the private welfare system is almost it's almost like there are still people that will probably give to it um, and and will contribute, but it's almost like the they have outs. You, you said it perfectly. Outsourced their responsibility. They don't feel like they need to. They can say, "Hey, I've already done my part." Uh, and they're accurate in that statement. And so it's not like, and it puts a limit on it. So it's like, instead of uh, they would have done whatever they would have done and it would have gone efficiently because they have their eyes on it because they're putting their check to it, giving their check to them. Um, and, and so that they're going to hold these people accountable. Instead, it's uh, okay. Here's 11% of my money. And then you go spend it however you want. Who cares? Um, and I think that that's people, how people look at it now. And when you ask people to help, like they say, well, I've already done my part. I, my dad says it all the time. If, uh, if, if I ask him about nonprofits and stuff, he's like, I pay my taxes. That's what it's for. Not to put him on blast or anything, but like, that's an accurate way to look at it. All kinds of people say that. We live, that's a perfectly accurate way to look at it in the system that we live in. The problem is that money, maybe 20, 30% of it is used for the effectiveness that you would want. And we know this. We know that the government systems are not efficient and they're not effective and they're in debt and they're not working. Like everyone says that on both sides and they just pick different ones to, to point mm -hmm. at. When nobody's asking like, why are we doing this then? Like we could definitely, are we? do we feel that incompetent as a society that we don't feel like we could get this done in a more efficient way? Like that's what it felt like. It feels like to me, like we're saying, if you're saying that you are okay with the government doing it the way that they've been doing it, which is terrible, which everyone agrees is terrible. It's like, you're saying there, well, we couldn't do any better. And I just don't think that's true. I think we could do a lot better. I think yeah. that we all want to do better and we all want to do better together. And we just can't because we're out. We've literally outsourced all of our responsibility mm -hmm. to this other group. That's doing it like shit. And we, we wonder why we feel hopeless, like collectively as a society, or like we're not making an impact or we're sad or, you know, in the extreme versions, school shootings again. Um, a lot of people believe that we can't do any better. So they've already lost if they can't believe that we can do better. Um, but the people that believe that we can do better, they're disaffected too, because they feel like they have this. And it's true. It's this huge mountain to to overcome this huge obstacle to overcome in dismantling these programs. And it, the only way to do it is like to believe one vote at a time, that decentralization and private charity are more efficient per dollar objectively. Show me a single instance where that's not true um, will lead to a better world. Well, um, I think it goes back. Thing. Think about when you work at a company and like you all pull money um, to, for like, say it's Christmas time. There's a big difference in whenever you guys do secret Santa or there's a big pool of money and your boss each gives you a $15 gift card. Which one gives you more elated joy? Um, mm -hmm. Which one do you feel more accountable towards? Um, which one are you like putting any mental effort towards watching other people? Like which system works better and who ends up happier? Uh, I mean, obviously when everybody's picking out their gift that they want to give, 
it's a much happier feeling. It's a better and better discourse. People are more accountable and they're actually purchasing items that the other person would want. Instead, the other system, it's just everybody gets a $15 Chick-fil-A card and it's like, oh, thanks. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. But you really don't actually even enjoy it. That, yeah. And that's where that's the state of our country. They don't really even enjoy what they're getting. It's just expected. It's like, well, I fell into this situation and, and that's and that, that's what I'm owed. And the expectation problem is a that's a perfect segue into the last few points that we wanted to make here is uh, the moral hazard, the expectation, like destroying people's uh, belief in themselves and their and their fellow citizens. Uh, back to our point that knowing there is the recipients and knowing the donors and the donors knowing the recipients vastly reduces abuse. And, and creates a sense of connection. Um, the the moral hazard here, to your point, is that like recipients begin to feel entitled to these benefits, um, and not only is that bad because they're they feel entitled to the fruits of somebody else's labor at the end of the day because these benefits are being funded at the point of a gun uh, through taxation, um, but this is bad for the. So it's bad for the people like funding these supposedly deserved entitlements, but it's even worse for the person that's receiving them because consciously or subconsciously it conveys to them that they're incapable of being independent. Yes. That they will be in this position forever. And this, and like, I think there's stats to bear that out that if if you believe that um, if you're a person on food stamps and you're entitled to them, like you put your, you start to self-identify with that. Yes. Because you won't go get a job that puts you over that limit. It'll that, keep yes. in that barrier. You'll you'll yeah. say, and people don't understand this, is, but it makes perfect sense if you were in that situation. If you could make $26,000, which I think is the cutoff or somewhere around there for food stamps, if you made $26,000 and you had an opportunity that came around to make $31,000, but you're getting seven or $8,000 in food stamps, why in the hell would you take that job? And that mm-hmm. job could lead to a better job. But the chances are they're not even going to look at that because they're worried about real life shit. Um, and that's perfectly understandable, but that's what happens. And so there's this barrier that's built. You have to, we all know that as you move through the, the job rankings, like, you know, you have to take that job to get to the next job, but they've placed themselves in this. I can't take that job because I can't live off of 4,000 less dollars. I'm already at nothing. Mm-hmm. I think that they're accurate in that statement. And, but it's this system that we've created where it's like, there's these barriers. And, and I think the the left talks about breaking down barriers. They don't realize that their own system is creating this giant barrier for the people. Absolutely. Uh, you, and you got to think about the individual level. If you're getting housing assistance, food assistance, transportation assistance, if you bum, bundle all these things together, it's worth twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, which is not a great life. But you got to acknowledge that if if the person if the person's working zero hours a week because they legally can't work a certain amount of hours a week and still qualify for all these programs, they would have to forfeit all of these things they're getting for free plus 40 hours of their life at least to get a job just to break even. Now, like, who would be incentivized to give away 40 hours of their life every single week to work a job just to break even? You know, the, 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 the welfare deal is always better. So they would have to be offered a job. I don't know. It's going to be different for everybody, but they would have to be offered a job five, 10, $15,000 more to compensate for them giving up 40 hours of their week to actually go work. But the problem is, they're not going to get jobs that are offering 
35, 40, $45,000 a year because they're not entry level jobs. They don't have the skills to match those jobs. And this creates a person stuck in the welfare system because the incentives are all wrong. And that's our overarching point about this entire episode is that the incentives are wrong. That's why we didn't, we didn't necessarily get to this point because uh, humanity's evil or cor- uh, capitalism's bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, we got to this point because that's exactly how the incentives are set up. Yes. Yeah. It's, just, it's explained in the system. It's like, it's like you have, you have fa- uh, math for physics. And uh, if it's a good physics equation, then the math will work out. Well, that's what this is for um, like your social, mm-hmm. social properties. Like you, if you're, if you're creating a system, uh, it should work out with the math. It should work out with the ethics. The math is the, your ethics. Like you understand what is right and wrong at the same time, you see it why, with how the money is spent and how thing, what outcome comes out of it. And I think we see a negative outcome because our system is inefficient and that's, uh, and, and also the ethics within it are inefficient. And we all know that um, based off of the math that comes out of it. I think it'll all match up um, and, and People aren't necessarily, and I don't blame them because it's hard, but people aren't digging strong enough to find the system that'll work because they are, it's easier for those people that are in high places to control your money and to get more of it. Um, if they tell you, you know, it's this system or this system, and you don't ask like, should we even be using one of these two systems? Uh, and so they pin two against the two against one or one, one against one. Uh, and, and force you to choose uh, the lesser of two evils when there is a good option um, and it's ourselves it's using your own money using your own life to to do what comes natural i think in this world uh, and when we get to these unnatural systems uh, and with unnatural ethics and uh, I, I think it, it'll show its fruit um, with people taking advantage of a system that allows for it fantastically said and uh, i think that that lets us get into our conclusion here so let's like end it seems bleak at this point, right? We talked about the inevitable, like how hard these systems are to overcome. So let's like come up with a few uh, ways that we could fix this system um, and then we can wrap up. Um, but uh, the, removing these programs right now seems politically impossible. And it kind of is because the, the people that advocate for destroying these systems uh, hate poor people and want them to starve to death. Like that's why the the title of this episode is so catchy is that um, the it's so easy to paint uh, somebody into a corner, um, that wants to dismantle these systems is not caring about people. Um, but we have to make it politically possible to remove these programs or they will be there forever. So how do we do that? Um, it it starts with conversations like these. It's like, you have to demand results that are connected to the inputs that these politicians tweet out and, uh, go around soapboxing about all the time. They'll talk about, as you said, all this money that they're given to all these different programs. That is not the whole story, guys. We got to demand results connected to inputs. And even if your heart's in the right place, or even if you think like the government still is the best option to solve these problems, you get to, you can still benefit by demanding results from these government programs. Um, we can, we can test and see if like before dismantling, I'll throw you a bone. Just before dismantling these government programs, we will keep them as is. All we will change is that we demand results. And the deal yeah. you make with me is if we don't get the results that we agree on together, then we dismantle the program and make it private. We can test yeah. that first. That's fine. That's compromise. Because we know 
we know that we can run that we can run these systems effectively and efficiently because it's been done before and it's just been a long time. Um, but you know, a lot of these social programs haven't at one point didn't exist, and we still at one point were surviving. And so I think that that if we are going to introduce these new programs into things, you at least it just makes sense to at least make sure that they're working in your favor if they're not why are we having them like mm-hmm. that's got to be a question like in everybody's mind like you can't we're not going to create a system just to create a system or create a, a system just so some bureaucrat can steal our money like i don't think anybody wants that mm-hmm. we all are going to create this system i think we all want it to work so let's demand that it works let's demand that they do what they say that they're going to do and if not then yes the trade-off is like i'm sorry if you don't work then why are we giving you money and it is our money to give. So why would I give it to you if you don't do what you say you're going to do in an effective and efficient manner? And I'm not saying perfect, but I'm saying more effective. Right now, it's out of control. <laughs> and we all know it. Everyone knows it. Left, right, everyone knows it. And so let's have something that is effective and does work. It's not that hard of an ask, I feel like. No, I don't think it is either. You've already outsourced too much of your moral responsibility. Don't take it a step further and and offload all the responsibility you have to make sure that the programs that you've donated, like been extorted into giving your money to, uh, don't take it a step further and like remove accountability for the results of these programs. Um, and and so, and the way to get interested in, I don't, I, I didn't vote for that person. So like, Right. This isn't my system. No, like this is still my money. Yeah, this is that, does, that doesn't money. solve the problem. And it makes you sad in the process because you feel like you can't do anything to actually fix the issue. You can. It's it's yeah. it's, it's bringing it closer to home. Yeah, um, it's so like, we, we all have power as a whole and we all need to, as a whole, hold these people accountable. So the best thing you can do for like um, d- demanding the right results from these programs is to remove remove the heart and just like look at the data is it doing yeah. what it needs to do? Is it doing uh, what just I basic ask? and statistic, financial and statistical literacy here? Um, we're not asking you to do any advanced calculus. Like, look at simple line graphs. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any correlation between war on poverty spending and the actual percentage of individuals who are poor by the official poverty standard? Um, yep. Just basic stuff like that. Um, come up, come up with a case for why these programs should exist or, or exist in the way that they do. And if you can't uh, this isn't a failure. Um, this is a good thing. Um, yeah. this means we're moving towards progress. If you, if you can admit that these programs are a failure, because so that gives us in an science, opportunity to try something else instead of heading towards the cliff. Yes. In science, we know it, that they teach you at, at the very beginning stages that, uh, a failed experiment or an experiment that tells you, um, that what you were looking for was incorrect is not, uh, in itself a failure. It's actually telling you something else. It's telling you that this doesn't work, which is a beautiful thing because that means you can move on and not waste time. It's it's one of the 10,000 ways to not make a light bulb that gets you closer to the way to make a light bulb. That's beautifully said. That's literally perfect. And the the last example we've come up with here on how to fix this is another reason that it's, it's good to question this and, and change the system is that you get to restore some faith in humanity. And the best way, the best ways to look at yourself and the people around you, if you would be more likely and the people in your inner circle would be more likely to help people. If these government programs didn't exist, why wouldn't that apply to 
the, the country at large. Americans are some of the most, if not the most objectively generous people in the world. Yeah. It, we're in the best position anywhere in the world to create our own uh, welfare. Um, and, and how, how much more proud would you be in yourself, in your community and patriotic about your country? Would you be if we were able to solve this poverty issue um, without pointing guns at people and, and, and wasting all of these human hours, think about the collective human hours that are wasted through collecting fruits of labor that are getting thrown onto a giant pile and set on fire. Um, yeah, it, it, there's pros at every stage in fixing this. Just for the human aspect, wouldn't it be so nice to have some of your time, your effort, um, some that we're fighting about this, uh, some of the time and the effort that we're using, um, that we're using to pay for this, um, some of the time and the effort that we're using uh, to extrapolate this idea and m make it work um, in an inefficient manner. Wouldn't that be awesome to have all of that time back so that you could do some the same things in a more efficient manner and actually get to see some of the benefits from it if you chose to for those people that want to? Um, and for those people that don't, you get to at least see where your money is going and choose which things you want to improve in the world. And you get to have a hand in creating a better world. And, and what a beautiful picture that is. Like you get to be the painter that that paints a more beautiful picture instead of being just somebody on the outset that watches while the government does the job for you. Like it, it's just not as beautiful. It's not as exciting and not as happy of a life, I don't think. I, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, we were promised so many great, so many great things through um, increases in any in e increases in efficiency and automation. We're supposed to be working less. We're supposed to be have um, the number of hours we work per week is supposed to go down. The value yeah. of our money is supposed to go up. The prices of things are supposed to go down uh, over time. And by removing these inefficiencies, that's where that reality is uh, becomes real. That's where those promises actually become real. And that applies to the nonprofit sector too. And we're supposed to have more time to donate to these people and the money that we do donate is supposed to go further and preserve its own value over time. And so that world's perfectly possible. We just got to make the incentives line up. It's so close. A little it's, bit closer. I think it's so close right now to, to being there. Um, and, and they're having to tie up so much of our money and so much of our time um, in wars and in inefficient government systems. Uh, but I think if you took all of that away, think of how much time you spend in taking that kind of information and or how much time people across the country time, uh, spend in taking that information. These are the biggest news stories in the world is like war on Ukraine. How is this government entity spending our money here? And like how much mental acuity is it taking mm -hmm. up? when we could be spending that same time and same effort doing beautiful things all across the world um, for everyone. And, and I, I mean, I just think that that would be a happier and greater way to live. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I think that's a, that's our, that's our first swing at establishing the truth um, that, that, uh, that libertarians, at least, at least these two care about people, um, and that we've got a hopeful vision of the future that's in line with our political philosophy. And so, uh, th there's other ways to dive into this. And, um, this is one that we're, we definitely want feedback on, right? This, is a, yeah. um, this is uh, a place, this is an attack vector against libertarianism. That's very commonly used. And so we want to hear the other side of things too. It's probably so, the biggest, I would say. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I think so too. I think it comes back to that. Uh, most, most uh, pro con uh, pro um, libertarianism is good or bad arguments eventually get distilled down to, I don't believe in the individual enough to do the right things to create a good society. And so hopefully we took a good swing at uh, um, showing why that's not true today, but um, the best ways to get back to us, to Devin, so AKA social media master, let them know how they can get, get at us. Yeah, definitely uh, reach out to us at the Torch Podcast on Twitter um, and uh, the Torch Pod on Instagram. Or um, if you know any of us personally, you can always reach out via text. Give us a call. Um, and then if you uh, if you if you take our uh, Spotify stream, uh, the URL, I think there's a way that you can leave comments in our RSS feed as well. Uh, I might be wrong on that, but I know that you can follow us on Twitter um, and and leave comments in there and message me on the side. Uh, and and we'll de- we definitely take everything into consideration um, and listen to everything that you guys have to say. Um, many of you guys have reached out to me about uh, just like different things that you may agree with or disagree with. Um, and so I-, I love to hear all of that. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, we can all come to a better understanding together. I'm not trying to say that we're right. I just want to know what is right. And I think that that's an, an achievable goal if we all, um, you know, can speak together and have a dialogue that that is at least aiming at that. I think eventually, you know, you get closer to it. Maybe we don't figure it all out, but we get closer mm-hmm. uh, because we're willing to have that dialogue. And I think that's an awesome thing. It's a it's an enjoyable way to live. Yeah, not pursuit of perfection, pursuit of progress. Yeah, it's yeah, a, a beautifully said. So, um, so I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. We're gonna get back into a, a more regular schedule of getting these out to you guys because we miss doing it too. Um, and so. Um, We've got a a lot of really great ideas for podcast episodes, but we want to hear them from you too. So we're going to call it there. Um, Let everybody continue on with their weekend. And uh, that was great, Dev. Thanks. Another great one. See you guys later. Bye. See y'all.